0: Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
1: For those on the phone, we managed to trap my agent, this family, in this northeast seat we're having. They've been diplomatic. They say they'd like to divert the nation from San Diego, but I'm not sure i really like that straight. <laughs>
0: This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So, if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager who truly understands the dynamics of the market and how to deliver impressive returns, Visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. Let's turn to Exhibit A
1: first. because it's going to be in the news. The Senate is back this week, and the House is on a 48-day vacation. The people we elect don't really put in. as much time in but, but they're back, and they, they wait spending in the federal government works is the fiscal year is uh, September 30. And so as of October 1, they don't have any authority to to pay the bills. There are 12 bills that cover all the expenditure that the government does. And they are hung up. The Senate is working on their version. The House is working on their version. And they not only have to pass it through committee, presumably both the House and the Senate, if they pass it through committee would then take it to the floor the next day and approve it. And then there'd be a Senate House conference to iron out the differences. Hard to imagine that all that will happen between now and the 1st of October. So. One of the things we have to watch out for as investors is the possible dislocation of have this, having this go, going on. I know I'm a broken record on this, but if you look down after all the kind of mandatory expenses, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, interest defense, all other spending in 2019, which is the year before COVID, was 910 billion. Based on the CBO numbers, it's going to be 1.4 trillion for the fiscal year that we're just, just about to end. We cannot afford that extra 500 billion of spending. Interest rates are a problem. In 2019, where it had much lower interest rates, total interest expense was 380 billion. This year, it's going to be 640 so They need to get to work and try to figure out how to do what the government does for the and the implications here are that the deficit on the CBO numbers for this year is 1.4 trillion and then 1.6 next year and 1.7 the year after so there's no relief in sight interest rates will probably be higher so you know, it, it is going to affect us as investors because the real interest rate adjusted for inflation was zero for most of the time period after oh9 Now it's going to be the inflation rate plus two or three points. And other things being equal, the equities we all own will be worth less money. Now that's not a reason to go sell things you own. Well, it might be a reason if you have a favorite stock that you want to add to hold off a whole lot of it. There's some certainty that we'll be going through as the two houses of Congress try to work this out. Exhibit B, which is gas, is disappointing. I actually have listening in a person who runs one of our gas companies. Not speaking role, so don't get nervous, part, but <laughs> the production has gone up a lot more than the demand has unfortunately. Between the end of 2000 and beginning of 23, it went nine bees a day. So, I mean, if you divide that by 24 months or two years, that's four and a half bees a day a year. LNG is terrific, but LNG takes a long time to build, and it doesn't come on at more than about one and a half or two bees. So, in 21, when we started to see high future gas prices. In fact, in, in prices in twenty-two averaged six dollars. In twenty twenty-one, the difference between supply and demand was a negative two hundred million a day. In twenty-three, the difference between supply and demand is three point four feet a day. And three hundred and sixty-five days, that's a trillion feet of gas. Our total gas storage in the country is only $4 trillion. so it's, it's a wonder, actually gas hasn't averaged less than 280. What everyone uh, including all of us in the business hope for is it'll get sprayed out in 24 and 25. The problem is that gas production was 101 b's in early 23, it's now one or two and a half. So if LNG demand is up one and a half, we've already taken care of that with increased supply. So I think what we're thinking is that that we will see $350 or $4 gas. We won't go back to $6 gas, which is what it averaged in 22, or we might not see it until 25. The last page is oil. Oil demand and is okay, but Oil supply is doing marvelous things because OPEC plus, so OPEC plus Russia, is curtailing supply. And the price of oil, which I think would otherwise be around 60 if this curtailment wasn't taking place, is, is much higher. It's the mid-80s. So uh, I think what we're headed for is a, a political issue between Saudi Arabia, a leading producer, and the United States, because the Biden administration, this, this gas price is already put gasoline prices up at $4. Uh, this is not how the Biden administration wants to do their re-election campaign. So, once again, I think there's a certain amount of uncertainty there. With that, I'd like to get off the back to the front of the memo. And Normally, Mike and I talk for about 20 minutes a morning, five mornings a week. And Mike and Jason talk to each other and, and to other people all day. But Mike in New York, with the three and a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and, one and a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, we have been doing her 830 calls. So we are more or less unrehearsed today. And given the unrehearsed nature of it, Mike and I have agreed we're going to rely on Jason. So, thanks (laughs) If we go to page one If we go to page one What kind of news do we have On uh, any of these three companies Apple, Alphabet, or Google, and Tesla Jason, what what do you see What's happened since last Wednesday That you'd like to comment on
2: I guess the only thing I've noticed among these three is is with Google, they've officially rolled in their generative AI tool into Google search. And I have to say I'm I'm surprised how much I like it. So when you you everyone's probably noticed by now, it's it's been in there for about a week. You perform a Google search and it gives you about two paragraphs of generated answer. And what I'm finding is that's sufficient for me. And I'm far less likely now to click a link and follow through. And those links are often, you know, at the top of the page, they're the they're the sponsored promoted links that are are sold. So next to the generative AI response, there's there's three links. And it's not clear if those are, are paid positions or not. But it'll be really interesting to see how monetization of, of search plays out for the rest of this quarter.
1: We can turn to the next page with Microsoft. Does this make you less confident about the numbers you and to put working on your Microsoft position in terms of what uh, Copilot might be to free cash flow at Microsoft? If you if you did it, the two paragraphs with uh, Google search.
2: Um, no, to me, to me they're... Maybe. Like, I, I, Mike yeah. wants to
1: speak to that.
3: You're, 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 you,
2: got a, <laughs> you got a pretty better
3: crank, out, you know, so Mike wants to speak to that. <laughs> I, will, I, I will say, that we hoped that Bing search would be icing on the cake, but we didn't model any growth into our predictions on it we do feel like it's highly probable that the, the AI co-pilot piece for Microsoft Office will be extremely accretive to cash flow. Whether it's $30 billion in additional, which would be a 50% increase, that, that would be a lot. Um, yeah. But it's not out of the question. But your prediction of your range must be a little lower now that Google's come out. With no, not really. Oh. Not really? Because it's... They, uh, so if you think about the classes of office software, right? Mm-hmm. There's everybody that's on Office three hundred and sixty five, which is the vast majority of the professionalized world, and then there's everybody else that's on Google. Mm-hmm. Um, the Google products are good, but if you're a, does your company three, use 365? Three, yeah. Dog. Okay. So uh, <laughs> we got a validation from 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 an outsider in the room, and most businesses use Office 365, and those are the customers that, that we care about from a Microsoft perspective. With Google, we have Google Suite and Office 365, partly because our the Google Suite that we pay for, what do we pay for, it, Jason? It's like ten bucks a month per person. So it
2: uh, I think that's us.
3: Yeah, it's all our email and everything. Um, would we pay the extra $30 for the Google one? Or would we pay the extra $30 for the Microsoft one? That I don't know if I could answer for you, but I don't think that we're the typical customer. Right. We're, we're a little over tech skewed.
1: I still wonder on page two, how snowflake is going to deal with this. It seems to me that Large language models are a bit of a risk for, for Snowflake, and uh, you and Jason and like, Snowflake will be fine. Partly because they're trying to get the video, but it just seems to me that it's possibly disruptive to what Snowflake does for its customers. I, I think Jason's explanation on
3: this is better than mine. I will add before Jason goes that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better for Snowflake from a just his. Of uh, the speed at which things move. Jason, maybe, maybe it would be good for you to talk through your yeah.
1: vision on the way to one question Jason. I mean, yeah. Jason, uh, the, the Snowflake customers have a limited budget, and to the extent that they start doing large language models crafted by the video mm-hmm. for their research scientists or something, that's got to come out of somewhere, mm-hmm. and it doesn't right. have to create some rhythm for Snowflake. But go ahead, Jason.
2: Right, right. The way I've been thinking about it lately is the language model is going to be the interface that you query your data in snowflake. So today you would have data scientists that write SQL code. You know, they they have to learn this computer language and to run the queries to get answers back. And I think in the near future it'll be just a, a natural language discussion if you will with your data and then instead of the the language model is generating you know, a fictional dreaming up a response statistically based on what word comes next. It's going to generate that SQL query for you and then you'll get the actual ground truth response from your database. So what's happening and, and what we're starting to see though and why Mike says it's going to get worse before it gets better is obviously it, the better is there's going to be a lot more users of the Snowflake platform. You won't have to be a data scientist. You can be just anyone at the at the company but how it gets how it gets worse is these algorithms might be much more efficient at generating the SQL code than humans are so it's it's kind of a trial and error to get the right response but if the if the AI is much better at creating it than humans are we're going to see less queries going to the Snowflake database And then since they are a consumption model, less consumption of their resources, and therefore your bill will be lower.
3: There's a little bit of an issue with their business model in that as they release improvements to Snowflake, it actually cannibalizes their own revenue. Now, if they're smart, they're okay with that because in the long run, we are ensuring a good long-term relationship. But we know from looking at, I believe this is it. Jesus was it the Instacart uh, it was. filing.
2: It was, yeah. Yeah,
3: they were able to reduce their self like spend by, I think, an order of magnitude. It, it was a very significant decrease in spend by optimizing the way that they were using their consumption credits. So, is a threat. What
1: would I know as a queue public using products like this? How would I? What would I know this?
3: Uh, probably nothing, unless you're putting a bill for Snowflake. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of this is what happened is growth was happening so fast through COVID, nobody cared what the bills were. They were paying the Snowflake bill because they were getting positive results from whatever the data analysis projects they were doing. Now, CFOs are analyzing everything, and they're saying, why is our
1: Snowflake bill so big? And you have NVIDIA out there. Let's say, this, this is an example we used before that Jason came up with. Let's say we have a pharmaceutical. Uh, like, well, we might even get to that. But let's say it's Biogen. It's conceivable that the Biogen scientists would want their own NVIDIA server and large language model where the rest of Biogen, counting and whatnot, might, might run on. S- cloud services and cloud services stuff Snowflake. So it just seems to me that most businesses are not going to sanction having their e-budget controlled by 10 or 15%. So whoever's trying to run it is going to have to try to fit things in. And whoever's running the IT budget or running IT departments under enormous pressure have more AI tools than everyone. Especially, you know, finance scientists, but probably in the coming area are too. Things that are not AI related are a little vulnerable because they'll, they'll go trying to save money places to build up their AI capability. How is AI going to help the back office, the accounting and all the all the <coughs> the less less sexy, less attractive parts of this?
3: Yeah. So that's a good question. We think the lowest-hanging fruit is more sales-related, because- And and we'll talk about Salesforce. Yeah, Salesforce is a good example, right? They hold, they're the first real cloud business. They hold all of your conversational sales-related data. So you can actually automate a lot of conversations, or at least prepare marketing campaigns, whether it's direct to an individual, or broader for direct-to-consumer type products using that data, Salesforce is going to offer that as a service. It's going to be something that later on. It's going to be super expensive
1: and it'll probably pencil out as opposed to ROI. Okay. Salesforce gets, if you turn to page two, Salesforce gets criticized for, it's big. It's, 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 it's part of the Dow Jones party. It gets criticized for having a whole bunch of revenue and not that much free cash flow. And they just announced their earnings and they're they, they under pressure because they have some patrons that are you know basically campaigning to replace the founder as the CEO, basically what they're campaigning. And he's kinda come back to say, No, I, I can fix this but again Salesforce can be out there offering customers stuff. It's gonna cost more money. And so there's some, some real risk that there'll be some margin compression. Well, they built the yeah. business based on an mm-hmm. MA model should they buy different software businesses and consolidated Is that, that a okay. fair statement? Yes, does but what we're happen? seeing,
3: I'm gonna step it back to broader for software companies. Uh, we historically most of these are growth companies. They've all been reinvesting their cash flows. And we've had this discussion before about is their sales and marketing expense. Is that really a cost of good sold? Is there R and D expense? Is that is some portion that really costs a good necessary to hold on to their customers? Right. So, yeah. But what we've seen in the last few months, right now, software operating margins, free cash flow, is higher than it's ever been in the last decade. So some companies have been able to, on average, get their free cash flow, and it's. I think that's a sign of the times, right? Yep. Uh,
1: AI should be able to help figure out how to do that, do the
3: thinking part of guess, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. So I guess. all that is to say is that the things, the back office stuff, is probably going to come later. Um, yeah, those things will take longer to sort out. It's really hard to do. I, this is an analogy that we should talk through: is the, the the difference between a probabilistic model, which is a large language models, like you and me as humans, we think probabilistically, but your calculator is deterministic. That's, two plus two is four every single time. As you might have seen, if you've played with any of these models, sometimes they end up with weird mathematical solutions. So your computing stack, and this is where Snowflake sort of comes in, gets to be, as Jason said, a large language model for an interface to the human. But then there's the other pieces that do more deterministic type things that interface with a large language model. So all this is sort of coming. and. It, it's moving pretty fast, so we could be having much different conversations in six months. Page three
1: is the, the Nativia page. And we all looked at Nativia back in January, and it it's was about $120, and, and it was still very expensive relative to the cash book. And mm-hmm. fortunately, uh, Mike and Jason owned it or continued on it. I couldn't get comfortable with it, and then it probably tripled the thing that the thing that caused it to take off was the founder, CEO, with his first quarter announcement, saying that the next quarter sales were going to be a billion dollars which was you know, two or three billion dollars more than anyone had expected. and they they, they then had their second quarter uh, yeah. results and the same thing. They're, they're finally predicting now fifteen billion sales per quarter. So the take up in these chips and no one else seems to be able to to actually AMD would be the one that would be oh, we should come to back to that. Yeah. It's not AMD.
3: and yeah. you're gonna be surprised who I say. Uh, okay. Oh <laughs> <laughs> you're up right before Okay. So, so we do better with without rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh,
3: the we've been talking about Intel. AMD has surpassed them in their CPUs. They got ahead partly because Intel Foundry, Intel's own manufacturing, has got them behind. We've talked about how Intel has always been on the leading edge of the innovations in the chip making industry. And Time and Semiconductor actually trailed them in the past by implementing those things that Intel did. So a lot of copying happened at Time and Semiconductor. Intel today does a better job with software than AMD does. And we've talked about software being the key to NVIDIA's moat, if you will, in this whole GPU and large language model AI business. Intel's in a much better position to build that software. The early reads out of the new Intel Gaudi GPUs are actually pretty positive. And I don't know if Jason agrees with any of this, so it should be interesting to see what he says. but you could I, I'm not saying that Intel actually a good investment because there's a lot of problems over there, but there are green shoots. And, and back to those innovations that Intel has done in the past, the one that's really interesting right now is backside power delivery. And without going into the weeds, it's something nobody else is able to do. It's something that AMD in particular will not be able to do because a semiconductor doesn't have a tool set. So it's an opportunity for them to move ahead. Their CPUs should be regaining some market share from AMD. All along, so is it a new generation of CPUs? Yeah, as they roll out using how oh, semiconductor as the manufacturer. On uh, the, the side. yeah, and eventually with their own ASML high NA
1: EV. The secret to doing all this stuff, or at least the small animator is ASML, which is established by Intel I and mean, others. And it's based in Holland. A lot of their operations are in the US. And the ones that make the lithology machines that are the key here. The latest model of on of their lithology machines, if you're Intel and they're building a fab, $300 million. It's um, hard to believe. It's <laughs> a,
3: I mean, and the scale is so big, you have to design the fab, the factory,
1: around the machine. And these are the machines good. that will not go to China. We do have some childhood though
3: with the latest Huawei. Oh, yeah. Huawei launched a film with a uh, 7-nanometer SMIC chip manufactured on DUV technology, which is the lithography technology that they're allowed to buy. And the way they get a 7-nanometer chip is by essentially multiple, they call it multiple patterning. Long story short, it's hard to do at scale with high yields, but they must be doing it. And the question is, this is kind of something that I've to in the past, is if we put constraints on China in one area, they're gonna innovate in other areas. And if that means that now they can produce seven nanometer chips with CUB technology at scale, that's something that nobody else in the world is doing. So we're in the process of creating
2: a bigger problem maybe. I'll I'll add that that the fact that they are able to do this doesn't surprise me. Intel was designing their 7 nanometer fab to do just this process. They chose not to buy the very expensive EUV lithography machines that you're you're just talking about. They've tried to do it with the old older DUV designs and they designed their 7 nanometer node around that. So they they've obviously had a lot of problems but they're going to. Yeah,
3: they fell to off the them. leading ad, They're yeah. now almost completely obsolete as a
2: business. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, but but, but yeah. It, they proved it was possible, um, uh, seven, five six years ago now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Just not as you as you are alluding to, just not with economics that made it feasible.
1: I, I, Jason, in the three minutes we have left, since Mike and I, we promised we haven't talked much this week. So, and, and since we're not scripted, and I think it's evident we're not scripted, which of these companies on page three, if you had to own one of them, to the exclusion of the other four, which one would you own? At today's price. At today's price. At today's so.
2: price. I would choose ASML. Right. I think.
1: And you're right. Now, your rationale there is a two or three year backlog
2: absolutely yeah huge backlog as we're seeing you know the, the China is going to continue to have a huge demand for these duV machines and it's not just for seven nanometer chips it's for uh, all the chips that are going to go into solar panels wind turbines EV automobiles all those all those uh, new parts of the industry of their respective industries use a multiple more uh, semiconductors than the previous generations that they're replacing.
1: Right. We're supposed to spend people time biotech, and we have like two minutes left now. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll just ask Jason: any any news on the uh, Pfizer page?
2: Tangentially related to Pfizer, the FTC gave the go-ahead for the Amgen Horizon Therapeutics merger. I think that is a, a great thing for the industry, since M and A is kind of how they they fund the research, and tangentially, it, it improves Pfizer's chance to have approval for their C Gen deal.
1: I, this is page fifteen for those with the twenty pages. You guys are disappointed in this, but you think they're still basically in a strong position. It's just the stock market has written it down
2: twenty five percent. Right. We've been searching for what the reasons may be and there's there's a a competitor out there that we feel is measurably inferior. So we're we're comfortable with the position even though it's dropped quite a bit recently.
1: Right. And just in closing, Mr. Cashwell, which is me, not to disappoint Micro Jason or anyone else. I'm just so impressed with vertex, I don't really understand what they do or how their prospects look but look at their balance sheet this is the last of the album up page with that but negative debt that is cash and that cash was accumulated over time i mean look at their results i'm really impressed with
3: that well jason we should get a read on their phase three pain study in september right this month
2: yeah it, it should be it should be soon they're I don't know where they are with enrollment, but the, the whole trial is scheduled to conclude, I believe in November. So they'll have early readouts, probably not before too long. And they're expecting an FDA decision on their CRISPR gene therapy this month also.
1: And just for those who aren't are regular Wednesday listeners, where takes, most interesting thing in their, in their future products, is this pain study? It's a non opioid pain medicine, which would be terrific. Yeah. You know, it takes a long time to get these medicines through trials, and lots of times they don't make it, but it would have a huge impact. Well, and okay. we think the uptake would be very quick because the government passed
3: uh, what was called the No Pain Act. Sorry, Jason?
2: That's right. Uh, mm-hmm.
3: Last year, they'll cover the difference in cost between an opioid and whatever is non opioid if
1: some treatment like that would come to market. uh, Good. Well, with that, we promise to spend more time on biotech next week. And uh, uh, Mike and his family will be all there back in San Diego where it's never more than 74 degrees. Take care, everyone. Everyone be well and stay healthy.
0: The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.